Welcome back to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. A month into 2019, and the fight over immigration policy here in Washington is still without resolution. Tonight, President Trump is set to deliver his annual State of the Union address amidst a tense political standoff over funding for a wall on the southern border. The speech will no doubt center around immigration. In a possible preview of what's to come, Trump dug in even further on Twitter, calling for Republicans to, quote, be prepared to do whatever is necessary for border security. Michael Scheer is best known for his byline as a New York Times White House correspondent, but he's also the co-author of a forthcoming book about immigration in the Trump White House, and he's spending some time as a resident fellow here at GMF. Our host, Peter Sparding, recently sat down with Scheer for a timely conversation about the surprising origins of Trump's wall fixation, the many characters animating the battles over immigration here in Washington, and where the actual policy debate stands beyond the bluster. Here's that conversation. Michael, welcome. Sure, happy to do it. So before we start with the actual conversation, is there actually a crisis at the U.S. southern border right now? Not in the way that Donald Trump describes it, what he calls an invasion of hordes of people, uh, drugs and, and gangs pouring over the border, kind of vast army of angry people coming across the border. That's not the case. So that kind of crisis doesn't exist. There are people trying to get into the United States illegally. In the past, that used to be decades ago, mostly Mexican adults looking for work, and they would try to cross into the United States. And that at one point back two, three decades ago got to several hundred thousand people coming across the border every month. That has largely abated. And the kinds of numbers that we saw three decades ago don't exist anymore. What that's been replaced with, however, in the last three or four years is families, mostly from Central American countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, fleeing uh, really intense violence and war in those countries and coming through Mexico and trying to find their way into the United States. And those have hit kind of record highs with 30 or 40,000 people every month trying to make their way into the United States, some of them coming through the ports of entry and some of them trying to cross illegally uh, in between the ports of entry along the Mexican border. And that's definitely a problem. And people on both sides of the debate will talk about that as a problem that needs to be addressed. And you need to figure out an orderly way to figure out which of those families deserves to stay in the United States because they truly are fleeing political or or other violence and which need to be sent back because they, they really don't have a claim to stay here and they should go do it legally. That's a problem. It isn't the kind of crisis that Donald Trump likes to describe. Okay, so Michael, we just witnessed a government shutdown, partial shutdown, based on immigration-related issues. So where do we stand now? We had the president asking for funding for a wall, Democrats holding firm. We had the president seemingly giving up his demands for now, but we only have a bit of a break. So are we where we are before, or have we solved this current impasse? Well, I think I think neither. I'm not sure we've solved it, for sure. And I don't know that we're back exactly where we were before. And, and that's partly that's because the, the truth about the wall issue is that it doesn't break down completely in the way you might think along partisan lines. Right. The Republican Party, many, many of the Republicans in Congress and the Senate and the House aren't rabid advocates of building a big cement or huge steel barrier along the, the border. They're just not. Many of them 
think like the Democrats do, that it's not effective or it wouldn't be effective in all places or efficient or cost-effective. Some of them actually feel like it's counterproductive. Many of the Republicans are more concerned with legal immigration and cutting legal immigration, changes to the American laws that attract different kinds of people to come in the country and on visas, so not crossing across the, the southern border. And so you have this kind of situation where really the only person who is obsessed with the wall is Donald Trump. Right. And for a time, he managed to corral the Republican Party behind that promise because it was such a big part of his campaign. It was such so central to his big rallies where he would get all of his base really sort of fired up about it. So for a time, the Republican Party kind of coalesced around that, and that's where we ended up with the shutdown, where the Republicans on Capitol Hill wouldn't move. But I think what you saw by the end of the, what was it, 35 or 36 days, was that the Republicans were crumbling, partly because the pain was so great. You had all of these stories of federal workers and the ripple effects of the shutdown and airports having to slow down or stop airplanes from flying because they didn't have enough federal screeners at the airport and and air traffic controllers and the like. And so I think now going into this second round, the idea that some of these Republicans who never really liked the wall in the first place, and it wasn't really their thing in the first place, the, the idea that they would shut down the government again over that is, I think, highly suspect, which suggests that however this ends is not going to be the same place that we were. If Trump wants his wall, he's going to have to find some other way because he's not going to be able to go to the same Republicans he went to last time and say, hey, stick with me and let's shut the government down again. So just to understand then how could this play out, there's zero incentive on the Democrat side. They weren't going to give him a victory anyway. The incentive structure is not that way. And also they just won, so to speak. So why would they now change their position? Is there a face-saving way? So there's some people have said that he might declare an emergency and thereby get out of this. Do you see any face-saving way out of the situation? Or is this just now going to be the new normal where every few weeks or so we end up in this impasse? So I think it's a, it's a really good question. And, and like everything else in this crazy last two years, right? Like, it, you're, you're hard-pressed to say that you know how this plays out because it doesn't seem to ever follow the laws of sort of natural political developments that we all sort of grew to understand in the past. I think one possibility is that you could imagine a situation where the Democrats give just a little bit, you know, where they say, all right, you know, there's X number of dozens of miles along the border where we could give a little bit of money for some fencing or where there's some existing barriers that could be made a little bit taller or that are run down and could be renovated. So one possibility is that they could do that in exchange for some other things that they want. And if the president were so inclined, he could just sort of declare victory victory and then try to move on. The problem with that is that his right wing, right, the Ann Coulters, Rush Limbaugh, the Hannity uh, types on Fox News might savage him for essentially getting very little of what he had had demanded. And let's face it, like the rallying cry at his, his, his rallies was not build the pieces of improved fencing, right? Like that wasn't the rallying cry. The rallying cry was build the wall. And, you know, a few miles of improved fencing isn't really a wall in the eyes of his base. But the other possibility would be this this national emergency, which, you know, he could say, I hereby declare there's a national security emergency on the border. As a result of that, I'm going to use my executive powers to designate this pot of money to be shifted from here to there, and we're going to build the wall. It's likely that he would be challenged legally in court. There would be people who would go to court, the Democrats and others who would say, this is not actually an emergency and you have to have an actual emergency to do this. The Republicans, though, are also a problem for him in this regard because 
They worry that if you set a precedent like this, if you can sort of just decide that the way to get out of a thorny political problem where you can't agree on spending money is to declare a national emergency and then just spend it anyway, they're worried that the tables will turn eventually and you'll have a situation where Democrats are in the White House and, you know, the Democrat says, I want to spend money on free college education or food stamps or, you know, something else, and the Republicans will balk and then the president will say, well, I'll just declare a national emergency and do it anyway. And so there's a lot of concern on Capitol Hill among even the Republicans that, like, maybe this is not a road we want to go down. Yeah. Okay, so let me try to kind of step back both chronologically and maybe pull us out a little bit step by step so we get to the bigger picture. So you already mentioned that the wall played a, a huge role in the campaign. I think most observers understand that to many of President Trump's fans, it might be about the concrete wall. It really is a symbol for something. You can't think of a more potent symbol than a wall. You know, coming from Germany, walls uh, stand for things, different, different things, of course. But a more potent symbol for we want something to stay out. We don't want change. How did it get to this? The president started his campaign pretty quickly on this theme. When Where did that come from? What was the background for this? I'll answer that in kind of two parts. The overall immigration theme dates back to 2012, 2013. He, of course, was known here in the States and sort of, I'm sure people noticed throughout the world, to be the sort of leading advocate of birtherism, this idea that Barack Obama wasn't a legitimate president because he had, in Donald Trump's mind, was not really born in America. He was born in Africa. He had sort of created this following of people who believed this sort of racist conspiracy. Obviously not true, but there, there was a following there. When he started initially thinking about running for president, people around him, his hangers-on, including, by the way, a fellow by the name of Roger Stone, who's been in the news recently, you know, because of being indicted by the special counsel. But they basically said to him, look, you can't run for president on the birther issue, but you need something that captures the same group of people, that sort of captures the, the same passion and, you know, the same sort of sense of, like— you know, the other as opposed to, you know, people here. And they said immigration should be that issue. It had always, he'd always been sort of a Archie Bunker type on immigration and on the, on sort of immigrants generally. And so he really embraced that. And throughout 2013 and 2014, as he sort of traveled the country and went to various political events, he would talk about immigration. The thing that happened with the wall was that he would go to give these speeches and he'd sometimes forget to sort of get into his immigration rant. And his political advisors would say, well, we got to think of something to, to make... Because he was speaking freely. You mean, he didn't he, have a right, script because, as much. Well, yeah. he, they, would, they would give him a script, right, but, and they, then but he he'd would. never follow it. And, you know, I mean, he just never would. I mean, he'd, okay. So he'd go give a speech. They would expect him to talk about immigration, and all of a sudden he'd be talking about trade in China, or he'd be talking about something else, or his, his, his Trump empire, or his airplane. He's sort of an undisciplined, as we've all learned, an undisciplined uh, character. And so Roger and a guy named Sam Numberg, who was his advisor, said, you know what? What we got to do is we got to get him some way to make sure he talks about this. And they said, you know, he's a builder. This is what he prides himself on being. He loves to build things. Tell him to talk about that he'll build a wall. And in fact, he loved it. He tried it the first time and he said fence instead of wall. And the crowd was not very interested in that. And then the next time he said wall. And the thing about Donald Trump to understand is that he feeds on this sort of energy from the crowd. I mean, I guess all politicians sure. do to some extent, but like there was this visceral back and forth. The minute he would use the wall line in early, early in 2015 and the crowd roared, he was hooked. From that moment on, throughout 2015 and then into the announcement speech, which was in June of 2015, and then throughout the campaign, the wall became, as you said, not 
not really, I mean, it sort of started as this device to get him to talk about immigration, but but in the yeah. end, it became this symbol for everything that he was talking about, about immigration, which is that the people on the outside of the country are making problems for people in the country, and we just want to keep them out. I mean, that's essentially the message. It dovetails, frankly, with his trade message as well, right? It's all kind of of a piece, of a mentality of, you know, let's erect the ramparts around the country and everything will be fine. It meshes with his sort of theory of withdrawing from crazy foreign entanglements and foreign wars, which you know, obviously puts him at odds with a lot of the folks in the Republican Party as well as some in the Democratic Party. But the, the wall is the symbol for it all. And it meshes also with the birtherism. And his political people said at the time that they they thought that you obviously couldn't win just with birtherism. The birther people might amount to 4 or 5% of his yeah, yeah. base. But the immigration thing tapped into a much broader, similar but much broader potential audience right. of people who were frustrated with the problems in their lives, and they wanted somebody to blame it on. And this was a this was an effective tool for that. Yeah. So what I find interesting in the way you describe how this came about is, so Roger Stone and others advise us, these are more you know, regular, or not, not so regular, but <laughs> longtime conservative right. political advisors. But they are not the the people that we now associate with the kind of vision behind these, the Steve Bannon and, and Steve Miller type people. So it doesn't sound to me, what you're describing, it's not a longstanding vision strategy that was then implemented. It sounds initially, at least, it was seen as this is a good tool for us to get attention, gin up the base. And then did the other side, the Republican figures like the Miller and, and Bannons, did they latch onto this and saw, oh, this is our vehicle that we can use? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So you have sort of two streams that, that intersect with Donald Trump, right? The one was the sort of raw politics. That's that's Roger and Sam and people who, you know, weren't intellectual right. giants on, no. on, on immigration, right? That wasn't their issue. They just sort of saw it as a visceral kind of political tool. And then, and then separately, you had people like, uh, Jeff Sessions is a right. senator in the United States who had spent a decade really sort of focused on little else but this issue of of really hardcore restrictionist immigration policies. You had Steve Bannon, who is almost an anarchist when it comes to this issue. I mean, he 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 he. There's no nuance there, right? He doesn't advocate a kind of balanced immigration policy. He just wants to keep everybody out. And he'll tell you if it, if it was up to him, he'd reduce immigration legal immigration to zero. And and the way he describes it is to say we got to focus on. Americans who are here, and when there's full employment for Americans, then we can let other people in. It's a very sort of uber-populist, nationalist kind of view of the world. And then you had Miller, who worked for Sessions, who was one of Sessions's top people and his communications director for a while. The three of them really were, even before Trump was on the scene, they had all been talking about how do we transform the Republican Party from a party that wants to embrace immigrants to a party that's closer to our vision of kind of shutting the country down and protecting us versus them kind of thing. They weren't making much progress, frankly, before Trump. If you looked on Capitol Hill, where Sessions was advocating and spouting these ideas for a decade, um, and Miller was there with him, and Bannon was kind of on the sidelines working in Breitbart News, which, you know, he became the editor of, all of these ideas that we now associate with Trump's administration were put out there repeatedly by this sort of fringe group 
and they never went anywhere. There weren't enough people on the fringe with them. You know, they could sort of stop things sometimes, but none of their ideas ever went anywhere. That's an excellent point because the interesting thing is, you know, we have similar phenomena sometimes in Europe now, but in Europe, it's new parties that, or not so new, but it's distinct parties that were formed at one point that bring this message. Whereas here for a long time, people thought the U.S. is not as prone to this because it's difficult to have a third party in the U.S. So, but what maybe was not understood is how you can take over a party. The thing that I find fascinating, and let me ask you about this, is after the 2012 elections, we had Mitt Romney who lost, and there was this autopsy report, as they called it, an analysis of what went wrong, so to speak, from the Republican side. And one of the, if not the key findings, as far as I understand it, was that the Republican officials looked at this and said, we need to solve this immigration problem because we're not making any inroads in a demographically changing country. Right. Otherwise, we'll, we'll have no chance. So after that, there were a lot of efforts in the Senate to come to a compromise to make this one grand bargain and thereby clearing the, the topic. That got blocked. So the right wing was strong enough, I think, my understanding, especially in the House with the Freedom Caucus and so on to, to stop this. But that, to me, does not explain how we got from an autopsy <laughs> that analyzed that this is the thing we need to overcome to just four years later running to the very far right and winning with it. How did it get there? And is, is the lesson learned the opposite now for the Republican Party? Yeah. So on the first part, the how did it get there? I mean, it, you're absolutely right. The autopsy happens. There is a sense that, that the Republican Party looks at the, the the country and says in places like Florida and Texas and Arizona and Nevada and, you know, there, there are states where the proportion of Hispanic population is growing rapidly. And the sense was if the Republican Party continues to offer this view that seems very much to be all about holding them back, kicking them out of the country, deporting people, that they're going to continue to, to fall further and further behind in terms of their chances of ever winning the presidency back. That was the idea. The leading proponent of that at the time was the chairman of the party, who was Reince Priebus. Right. I mean, he was the one that authored and essentially presented that report to the Republican Party. At exactly the moment that he's presenting the report, right, at the beginning of 2013, Sessions and Bannon and Miller actually have a dinner in which they ridicule the whole idea of this. Bannon basically says, and Miller agrees, and Sessions is right there with him, that the whole idea of trying as a party to appeal to immigrants, to appeal to Hispanics, is exactly backwards. They think that rather what you need to do is appeal to the frustrated white working class person in Michigan and Pennsylvania and in Iowa and, you know, sort of the heartland of the country who not only is frustrated and upset, but also blames the immigrant, the very immigrants that the, that Reince Priebus wanted to embrace for all of their problems. And the three of them, Bannon, Miller, and Sessions, all sort of thought Reince has it entirely backwards. The Republican primary campaign in 2016 was filled with people who embraced the Reince Priebus approach, right? You had Jeb Bush, Chris Christie would have, you know, sort of agreed with that approach. You, you had a whole bunch of people. Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio, sorry, of course, would have been right there. Rubio had, of course, worked on the 2013 immigration bill that passed the Senate, but then got blocked in the House, by the way, with Sessions' help. Sessions and Miller were very much complicit in working with the House folks to stop. They had failed to stop it in the Senate, but they worked with them to stop it in the House. You know, look, I, it is a really good question as to why was it that Donald Trump succeeded in becoming president on the backs of the, this one message. I think the analyzing of that campaign goes beyond the one issue, right? Like, obviously, sure. immigration was a, as a key part of the issue, but it also had everything to do with, you know, the way in which Donald Trump became this 
sort of media sensation, the way he belittled. I mean, we all remember little Jeb Bush, you know, and uh, or uh, low low energy low energy but Jeb, you know, and all of that. I mean, there were there were all sorts of ways sure. that didn't involve immigration, but in the end, like Sessions, Bannon, and Miller all rode that horse, you know, and they knew what they were doing. They knew that they had a guy in Trump who. I don't think any of the three of them thought that he really would win. But if he won, that this would be the way to drive a stake through the heart of the autopsy. Right. You know, and prove their theory, again, which they'd been trying to promote for years, to prove this theory that the autopsy was backwards, that they had it backwards, that, you know, we didn't need to be softer on immigration. We needed to be tougher on immigration and appeal to this core populist constituency in the United States. And the fact that it actually happened, I think, stunned everybody. Yeah. So in a way, winning the presidency, that was a big surprise for sure. Winning the primary was too, but in a way that was seen as also a fight for the Republican Party and what it would stand for. So is your view, the fact, I mean, we discussed it, you mentioned that there were many factors for Trump's victory in this, but the fact that he did win in the end and pretty clearly, and the next runner-up was Ted Cruz, who was also a pretty conservative figure. Do you think the Republican Party has for now, at least for the foreseeable future, decided that it is going with this with this message? Because the reason I'm asking is they are always in Washington, and maybe these are typical Washington fantasies that there should be a grand bargain at some point, right? That's the ultimate solution of this for many observers that Democrats will get what they want, usually something about the dreamers or a path to citizenship and these things, and they will agree on something else. It seems to me that the positions they've moved so far that given the polarization structure, there's no way that either side can give up any of its big deals. Because as you mentioned earlier, there are always people further to the side, like Ann Coulter on the right and so on. The only way this could be resolved is if one, in this case, the Republican Party would come back to a more stance that they had in the autopsy. Right. Is that so, a likely Yeah, I think or? that analysis is right. I, I think that part of the reason that, that there's unlikely to be a big bargain is because of the public rhetoric that Trump and, you know, kind of the others in the party have embraced for the last two years. The rhetoric has been so over the top and so anti-immigrant from the president on down that it makes any sort of dealing, um, any sort of uh, compromise difficult. Uh, but I also think there's a second reason why it's really unlikely for now. And that is because behind the scenes and in the bureaucracy of the federal government, Miller especially has been the really the leader of this, has really burrowed in to the inner workings of the government to change actual policy, to change regulations, to alter the definitions of who can come in, to restrict who can claim asylum and when they can do that, to increase the penalties for you know, for people who cross the border, to unleash immigration uh, and border patrol agents to arrest a whole new set of people that were largely considered not priorities under previous administrations. And those efforts are not, you know, they're, they're more permanent, you know, they're not, they're, they're not necessarily in the headlines every day, but they are slowly turning. If you, if you think of you know, I mean, there's a million different metaphors, but you think of like, a, you know, volume levels and if immigration, the, you know, they're trying to turn the, the, the knobs all the way down to zero. And, and, and every day they're turning another knob, you know, further down. And so I think the problem is that when you have an administration that is so aggressively trying to change the direction of, of immigration policy, it makes the political discussion that much harder because the, the Democrats on Capitol Hill know what's happening. They can see it. 
And there's no way that you're going to get Miller and company to undo those changes and, you know, in the short term. And so that makes a grand bargain particularly hard. I, I, this, this, maybe this analogy doesn't work perfectly, but it, it reminds me of the Palestinian, uh, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in which, you know, it's hard enough to ever imagine a kind of grand bargain between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, but as long as the Israelis are continuing to build settlements right. on disputed land, it makes it that much harder, right? Because you're actively you're creating facts. You're, on yeah, you're creating facts on the ground that then make the political discussion a constantly moving target. And that's what Miller is doing is creating facts on the ground, you know, throughout the government in ways that people don't even see. So I think that was why it makes it harder. And just to clarify, you think even, let's say, after the next election or so, and if Trump were not to be reelected, are these longer-lasting things? And is the Republican Party, in your view, probably likely continuing in the stance now that they've seen this? Or is that the— That's a good question. So, so, so first of all, as I do think that a lot of the things that Miller's doing could be undone, right? Okay. I mean, they're regulatory changes. Some of them— Uh, some of them take longer to undo just because of the way regulatory stuff happens. Sometimes it can take months or years to kind of roll back. You have to go through a, a process. Um, but some of it could be undone, and I think probably would be undone, depending on the administration that came back. Whether the Republican Party—is this the permanent place that the Republican Party is? I think not. I think much of the reason why so many Republicans seem to have shifted to this sort of xenophobic, nationalist— kind of position that Trump and Miller and company have taken is really more, I don't think most of them fundamentally have changed their ideological position on this. I think they're just scared of Trump, right? Trump seems to have a lock on the Republican base, the conservative activist base. And if you're a Republican, whether you're a senator or a, or a member of the House, the problem for you is that if you seem to be straying from that base, All of a sudden, Trump could tweet at you that you should get a primary opponent, and the next time you face election, all of a sudden, you're gone. And so if you could imagine, if you close your eyes and imagine a future where Trump is no longer president and Miller and company have been swept out and, you know, somebody else is in the White House, whether that's a Democrat or that's another Republican, I guess I sort of feel like the bulk of the Republican Party reverts to back to where they sort of naturally were going to be, whether it's all the way to the autopsy or not. I yeah. don't know. I guess the question then is there, you know, yes, the president might not get reelected, but Ann Coulter and Fox News are still there. This has revealed some things that maybe were uncomfortable or so about a large segment of the population. The message clearly came up and they might not know exactly, you know, or no one is really fixated on specific solutions, but there's a backlash of some sort against this change. For sure, and that might be longer lasting. Yeah, and it could be. I mean, it's look, it's a it's a question that I think is being asked about the Trump presidency writ large, too, which is like how much of what he's doing is permanent and how much snaps back to kind of you know, think about foreign policy, think about you know, and some and some things some things probably do snap back pretty quickly because you know, once he's gone, they do. They're so tied to the person of the president. Right, but like I think yeah. of things like, this gets a little bit far afield, but like the, sure. the, the sort of pullback that Trump did of TPP, the trade deal in, in Asia. If Trump leaves and the next president comes back, I, I can imagine a situation where that president goes to the Asian country and says, okay, now we're ready to go back to TPP. And the Asian countries are like, you know, sorry, we kind of already moved on from that. You know, there's... <laughs> yeah. we, so some things are more long-lasting, especially if he goes another four years, right? Yeah, if it's yeah, another yeah. four years, then a lot of stuff gets yeah. kind of cemented. I, you know, I just, remember, this White House was so strange at the beginning where you had 
Reince Priebus, the guy we talked about earlier, who is yeah. the author of the of the autopsy, the guy that came up with the idea that we should appeal more as a party, Republicans should appeal more as a party to to Hispanics, he was the chief of staff, and Bannon was there, and Miller was there. And so you had these constant warring factions. Now, truth, Reince is gone, Miller's still there, Trump is obviously president, he's still there, so like that side kind of won out. But it was evidence of the fact that there were there were and still are different factions in the Republican Party. And that faction that's the sort of Main Street Republican, you know, who believes in immigration, who believes that, you know, we kind of screw ourselves as a party to, you know, to to sort of uh, write off a whole segment of a growing segment of the population. Those those Republicans still exist. Okay. So let me close out by giving you this much broader uh, question so you can pontificate here a bit, but taking a a broader look about what this means for the U.S. So I think from my understanding, if you look at the history, this is not completely unprecedented. We've seen backlash against immigration in the 1920s, but even before that, whenever there was a big wave, there was always a a pushback, sometimes with even more draconian laws and and so on and stated. You know, at the same time, the U.S. has a self-image, at least the last decades of, you know, an immigration country where all immigrants um, you know, it's it's kind of the the motto that's uh, one of the court's strength actually of the of the U.S. But that seems to be very far away right now. So my question is: Do you see this as just in a in the historical term, long view of, of decades, if not centuries? This is one of those pushbacks, especially given the fact that there is a demographic change happening that in a few decades is going to quickly uh, change the the way the country might look at itself anyway. Is this just a pushback? Is this a longer thing? Is in the end demography destiny, as they say, and there's nothing much? These are just the last attempts to change the inevitable. What does it mean about the view of the U.S.? Because I think in Europe, many people look at this and are wondering, are they just going through something? Is this going to be in the end a different country? I know it's a big question. Well, it's hard to be predictive, too predictive, because I think while I agree that there have been, that this is a sort of pattern, right? And you talked about the 20s. It happened again in the 50s. Um, As you say, it happened even before the 20s. What's hard to know is how long each of those periods last, right? You know, is it a one four-year administration in which they try a lot of things, they get stopped in the courts, and the next administration comes in and it essentially picks up four years earlier? That's possible. I mean, I think that's a possible outcome, is that this was a sort of a blip. Um, But I think Trump and his people tapped into something in this country, right? And it's not unlike some of the stuff that's going on in Europe yeah. as well. And then whether you're a populist in Italy or um, the folks uh, railing against Merkel in Germany or if you're, you know, Boris Johnson and, and the other folks in England, there's something there. Clearly something bigger. Yeah. There's clearly something bigger there. And so in 1965, when the United States was sort of going through the height of its civil rights convulsions, right, there were two well-known laws that were passed, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act. There was actually a third, and, and it was the Immigration and Nationality Act um, in 1965. And Johnson considered it to be the third piece of civil rights legislation that he signed. Um, it was highly controversial. It was essentially the end of the racist um, immigration policies of the 50s that had grown out of the uh, anti-communist fervor of the 50s and McCarthyism. Johnson signed that, 
on Liberty Island. He flew most of the Congress and all of these officials out. There's great video online of him standing, you know, with the, with the Statue of Liberty in the background, talking about how this piece of legislation, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, was going to be the defining civil rights act for immigrants, just in the way that the other two were for people who were native-born. And what we're living through now is the backlash to that, right? I mean, it opened, what that act did was open up, it ended quotas, and it opened up immigration largely from Latin America. They didn't realize that was going to happen. And it helped to define that image that you're talking about um, of the United States really kind of opening its arms to immigrants from all over the country and saying, this is who we are, and this is how we're going to be defined. We're going to, you know, we're going to accept refugees without limits, some limits. We're going we're gonna to accept migrants from all over the world. We're going to grant asylum to people. And so what I think we don't know is whether the backlash that really, I mean, it, it, you know, it began, you know, I mean, you can go back to a decade ago and there were talk radio people talking about it. It, it helped to almost doom John McCain's campaign in 2008. Um, so it, it's been around. Trump obviously is the first one to actually capitalize on it in such a fashion to, to win him the White House in the same way that you know, I'm sure in Europe there have been these kind of movements and these anti-migrant movements for a long time. And it's just now, over the last few years, you know, getting to the point where that's powerful enough to topple governments and the like. And so the question is, and I, and I think it's an open question, is whether or not Trump, no Trump, Miller, no Miller, like, are there other politicians in the United States who are going to try to capitalize on that same, those same dissatisfactions? And I think the answer has got to be yes. You know, whether they'll have the same kind of success that Trump did or whether, you know, uh, the demographic changes will make it harder and harder for those politicians to be successful. I feel like I don't don't know as much about European demographic changes, but I feel like Europe maybe is more stable, right? Like, or, or maybe not. Maybe because of the influx of, you know, migrants from Syria and from elsewhere, like maybe their populations are shifting too. And so obviously they have, you know, different dynamics, but, you know, you would think that it would be harder for a politician in the United States five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, to be successful making these same claims if, you know, all of a sudden New Mexico is, you know, got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more, you know, Hispanics and Latinos and others. So I don't know the answer to the question, but I think, I think it's really, it's sort of the big question um, and why the, uh, you know, why we're writing our book and why the, why the focus on this is so important um, is because it's not a little question. You know, it's not, you know, the the question about what Miller and Trump are trying to do in the country is really about the American identity and what it means yeah. going forward. And they're trying to change that. And um, so so ultimately, that's why I think it's an important topic for everybody to think about. you want to quickly say when does the book come out uh do you know we hope the book comes out in the fall september october of this year and it will look at all these questions that we've been talking about and, and sort of try to get inside the Trump administration and uh, hopefully hopefully people will like it. Oh, yeah. We're all looking forward to reading it then. Well, Michael Shear, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Happy to do it. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. The hosts are Peter Sparding and Rachel Tausenfreund. And a special thanks to Albin Bochon and Marie Lowell for production assistance.